Americans. We are beginning a new series this week, and we're going to try something a little bit different. Bear with me one second while I... There we go. Okay, good. So we're going to try something a little bit different. So normally, when we begin a new series, we would provide a, a little bit of a introduction, and then would we, we would begin, of course, a, sort of a deep dive into the text uh, week by week. Well, we are going to do that. But before we do that, what we're going to do is provide an introduction. And then what we want to do is really provide an overview of the entire letter. Really what we want to do is in one or two sermons, really go through the entire letter and recognize the flow of Paul's thought, at least from a high level. And that will give us context that when we back up and go through the letter uh, a few verses at a time, we'll already have that big picture. We will have already sort of been in Paul's head, if you will, and understand how he's moving through the letter. So this is the first time we've done this, and hopefully this will work. So we will actually take two weeks to do this. We'll go through uh, the first two chapters today, actually uh, through chapter 2, verse 18. I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll read the part of Epaphras and Timothy as part of our reading next week. And then next week's sermon will be from the beginning of chapter 3 through the end of the letter. And between these two weeks, you'll have sort of a broad overview of Paul's train of thought through the entire letter. And that will, that will give us the context to move forward. So as we start, I think we need to begin with a little bit of a geography lesson. So let's talk a little bit about ancient Philippi. Uh, Philippi is located in what today is modern Greece. So the ancient city lies just inland of the northern coast of the Aegean Sea. So the Aegean Sea is that body of water that's kind of a mousier on the top of the Mediterranean, and it separates Turkey and Greece. Okay, so if you're in the Aegean Sea, right on the northern coast, inland of that coast is where the ancient city of Philippi was located. It's in that small part of Greece that sort of goes over the top of the Aegean Sea. And today, there's actually a small village of about a thousand people that exists near the ancient ruins. So Philippi is named after the father of Alexander the Great, Philip II of Macedon. And he conquered the region in the 4th century BC, due primarily to the gold and silver mines that populated the area. And then in the 2nd century BC, about 200 years later, the city became part of the Roman Empire or the Roman province of Macedonia. But the city really grew to prominence specifically in 42 B.C. uh, after what was called the Battle of Philippi. And what was significant of that with that battle is that was really what formed the the Roman Empire. Okay, And so that's when the Roman Empire really grew into fruition. And then shortly after that time, the city was made an official an official colony of Rome and then was settled with numerous veterans of the Roman army. And so as a result, Philippi enjoyed numerous privileges and economic benefits similar to the cities of Italy, and and it had a very strong Roman culture. Now, Paul founded the church at Philippi uh, during his second missionary journey, and you could read all about those details in Acts 16, but you probably remember the account of Paul's encounter with Lydia and Paul and Silas' imprisonment and the conversion of the Philippian jailer and whatnot. It's likely that Paul visited the church at least once, perhaps even twice, during his third missionary journey. 
And again, I can point you to Acts 20 and also the 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians. Now, Paul's letter to the Philippians is one of four letters known as the prison epistles. And these are four New Testament letters that Paul wrote during his imprisonment in Rome. And those four letters are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and his letter to Philemon. Philippians is also famous or well known for its joy terminology. It's impossible to miss the apostles' joyful mood throughout the entire letter. And this observation, coupled with the further observation that the church at Philippi didn't appear to suffer from the same immorality and worldliness of, for example, the church at Corinth, nor did it seem to suffer uh, from the heresy that, that gripped the churches of Galatia. For all those reasons, that has led some to caricaturize the church at Philippi as the perfect church. However, careful attention to the text makes it plain that this actually was not the case. The Philippians were anxious. They were struggling with divisiveness and struggling with uncertainty amidst mounting forces of hostility against the gospel. And so the joy that saturates Paul's writing is very much tethered to the fruitfulness that proceeds from gospel faithfulness. Okay, so we'll see shortly how this works itself out. Now, scholars and commentators agree that the letter is not easy to outline. On one hand, the structure of the letter is fairly reasonably evident. And certain portions of the letter clearly can be recognized as discrete sections. So, for example, almost everyone recognizes Paul's opening remarks and prayer in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 as, as typical of Paul's epistolary formula. Uh, most recognize Paul's updates on his prison circumstances in chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, as sort of an intact literary unit. Uh, and there are other examples of clear literary units throughout the rest of the letter. But outlining the text based solely on the literary structure of the letter isn't the most helpful. Our goal isn't to simply produce a table of contents of the letter, but rather what we want is an interpretive summary that follows the apostle's argument as closely as possible. So it's not enough simply to recognize the different sections of the letter. To recover what Paul intended to communicate to his original audience, we need to recognize Paul's larger argument and how any specific or smaller line of reasoning fits into this larger line of reasoning. And so that's what we're setting out to do this afternoon. Now, in addition to Paul's opening and closing remarks at the beginning and the end of the letter, there's a short section in the middle of the letter that consists of Paul's update about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, on, the, on either side of these sections, the flow of the letter is held together by two main arguments. And ultimately, these two arguments form the primary weight of Paul's letter to the Philippians. So the first begins in chapter 1, verse 12, and continues all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2. That's kind of his first argument. And then the second begins in chapter 3, verse 1, and really continues through the end of the letter, uh, or at least through 420. And so today, we'll look at the first of two 
of, of Paul's two main arguments. Now, if we want to summarize the entire letter in sort of one short phrase, a good summary might be uh, amidst opposition, think right, stand firm, and rejoice. Now, that's certainly compact, but to really see the value of such a summary, uh, we, we have to, that's only apparent after we work our way through the details. So this is great in that it's compact, can kind of fit in your pocket and give you sort of a mental picture of the letter that's portable and, and, and memorable, but it doesn't mean a whole lot until we sort of hydrate that with all the details and understand why we, we claim that to be sort of the summary of the letter. So before we get started, it's also helpful to clarify what prompted Paul to write to the Philippians. There's at least two reasons, and I'd like to bring these to your attention. On the one hand, Paul wrote to the Philippians in order to acknowledge his appreciation for their financial gift that they sent to him during his imprisonment in Rome. But Paul also had a much more strategic reason for writing. Paul also wanted to write in order to encourage and equip the, the Philippians in their suffering and battle for the gospel so that they would rejoice with Paul in the fruitfulness of the gospel's advance. So let's see how all this works itself out. The first 11 verses of chapter 1 contain Paul's greeting, a brief personal exchange, and finally his prayer for the Philippian church. And as is often the case in Paul's letters to the churches, Paul's opening exchange and prayer contain numerous allusions to those things Paul's going to emphasize later in his letter. And so as a result, these early verses these early verses can sometimes be rather busy, filled with what I might refer to as a bunch of moving parts and pieces, because he's sort of capturing a summary of everything he might be talking about in detail later on in the letter. But perhaps one idea that sort of holds these first verses together uh, is this idea of Paul's expression of gratitude and joy for the Philippian church. And Paul's train of thought goes something like this. He begins with an expression, and and we're going to read this in a second, so this is what you can listen for and watch for. He begins with an expression of gratitude and joy over the Philippians' unique partnership with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. In fact, he'll have more to say about that later in chapter 4. And then Paul goes on to affirm the authenticity of the Philippians' faith, as well as his affections for the Philippian church. And all of this leads to Paul's prayer for the Philippians, which as is typical of Paul's epistles to the churches, provides yet even further insight into the central message and themes of his letter. So let's read this. Uh, Beginning in uh, chapter uh, uh, Philippians, I'll I'll begin with verse 1, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment 
and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, there's a couple of additional observations I'd like you to see that will be helpful in grasping Paul's train of thought. The first one's pretty straightforward. First, in verse 7, we learn that, the, that Paul was writing to the Philippians from jail based upon what he says in verse 7. He refers to his imprisonment. The second thing I'd like you to notice is this phrase that Paul uses, the day of Jesus Christ. He uses it twice. He said it in verse 6 and he said it in verse 10. Now, it turns out that this is an important idea in Paul's mind. And he'll both use this phrase directly as well as allude to it throughout the rest of the letter. Paul is referring to what the Old Testament's referred to as the day of the Lord. You and I might often refer to this as Jesus' second coming. But Paul describes this day explicitly in his first letter to the Thessalonians, where in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, Paul describes a literal future day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, as the apostle writes, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And here's what Paul's drawing upon these next words. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You see, this last part is what Paul wants the Philippian church to keep in the forefront of their thinking. He wants them to be ready for this day, to long for and anticipate the day when Christ will be glorified among the nations and the faithfulness of the saints will be vindicated. See, throughout the letter, a key idea that is central in Paul's reasoning is that Paul wants the Philippians to rejoice in the present moment because of what they know to be true about the future. He wants them to rejoice in the present moment because of what they know to be true about the future. That was the second point I wanted to draw to your, your attention to. And third, and somewhat related to this second point, I want you to see the emphasis Paul places on the need for the Philippians to think correctly so that they act correctly. Okay? He wants them to think correctly, so that they act correctly. Look again at Paul's prayer in verses 9 through 11. Let me reread this. He says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with what? With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. So there's this idea of judging rightly, making wise choices, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this idea of thinking correctly 
is actually woven throughout the flow of Paul's letter. And this isn't something we're imposing upon the text. This is actually evidenced by the frequent use of the Greek term phroneo, which means to think, and a collection of other Greek verbs, often translated as reckon, consider, regard, or notice. These terms appear in the present letter with much greater frequency than in any other of Paul's letters or any of his other writings. And so this emphasis upon thinking correctly is often overlooked because it's eclipsed by the emphasis on joy that so many are quick to characterize uh, the letter. Now, that's true. It is about joy, but it's not just about joy. And, and we're going to see in a second how that joy is achieved. And at the risk of, you know, a spoiler, the pathway to that joy has to do with thinking correctly. Okay, so we're going to see in a few seconds how all of this works itself out. But suffice it to say, more than any other letter, Paul's intentionality here is about thinking correctly so that I act correctly. And somehow, some way, that is the pathway to the joy he's talking about. So we'll see that work out here in a few seconds. Okay, now immediately after Paul's prayer for the Philippians, Paul begins one of his two primary arguments that comprise the letter. Okay, there is a single connected train of thought that begins in chapter 1, verse 12, and concludes with verse 18 in chapter 2. As I mentioned, the other one spans from 3-1 through the end of the letter. Now, as we've already mentioned, and as we'll shortly discover on our own, Paul is writing in order to encourage and equip the Philippians in their suffering and battle for the gospel. Now, let me take a few seconds and explain to you in this whole argument sort of how his reasoning will flow, and then we're going to unpack that and look at the details as we continue the work through the text. So this is just sort of an overview of this of this master are this one of two master arguments that comprise the whole letter so i just got done sort of repeating his purpose for writing he wants to encourage and equip the philippians in their suffering and battle for the gospel well to do this paul needs the philippians to think differently he wants them to recognize their need for a unique kind of unity not the unity produced by the values of this world but a unity rooted in the love and humility exemplified by Christ himself. But the humility that consumed Christ's thinking was ultimately motivated by our Lord's confidence in the goodness and the trustworthiness of the Father. And it's that same confidence in the Father that Paul wants the Philippians to possess. And so what Paul ultimately wants to do is persuade the Philippians that they too can entrust themselves to the Father as Jesus did. And as they do so, the Philippians will rejoice in the fruitfulness that comes from their part in God's saving work. So Paul begins by providing a testimony of his current imprisonment. After which, Paul goes on to testify of his confidence in the future. Now, looking back at Paul's testimony after grasping Paul's larger argument, we'll see that Paul's update is ultimately an expression 
of the apostles' confidence in God's trustworthiness. The very same confidence that Paul exhorts the Philippians to possess through the rest of his argument. So now let's see how this works out. In the next few paragraphs, Paul rejoices over God's goodness and trustworthiness in the present circumstances of his imprisonment on account of three things. First, the gospel has been made known within Caesar's household. And as we'll discover later in the letter, some have believed. Secondly, because of Paul's imprisonment, previously timid believers are speaking the word boldly. And three, even though some who are antagonistic to Paul's ministry, uh, somehow they're preaching Christ in order to make things worse for Paul. He doesn't give us details on how that's working, but somehow, some way, their preaching has as its aim to somehow, some way, antagonize Paul's circumstances. But Paul doesn't mind because Christ is still being preached. So look down in your Bible, please, and let's pick things up in verse 12, and I'll read through the beginning of verse 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Now, you might be struggling to see why I described Paul's testimony as a testimony of God's goodness and trustworthiness versus simply in the plain fact that Paul is rejoicing over his circumstances. Well, that's because Paul's testimony in Philippians really has its roots at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So, on what is probably the previous page in your Bible, take a look at Paul's exhortation to the church at Ephesus at the end of chapter 6. As I mentioned earlier, Paul also wrote to the church in Ephesus during his Roman imprisonment. And when we consider the following passage, it's almost certain that Paul's letter to Ephesus was written prior to his letter to Philippians. Look particularly at Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 19, where Paul exhorts the Ephesians to keep alert in prayer, making supplication for all the saints. And then he writes, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So you see, Paul's testimony in Philippians is a direct answer to the prayer he asked of the Ephesian church. Paul asked for the boldness to unashamedly proclaim the gospel. And God answered that prayer, bearing fruit through Paul. And it's this fruitfulness 
at the hand of God's faithfulness that stirs Paul to rejoice. Now, in the verses that follow, Paul rejoices in his confidence of God's future faithfulness. So we just got done testifying of his confidence in God's present faithfulness or God's present trustworthiness. Now he rejoices in his confidence in the future. And in this case, it relates to the future of his imprisonment, whatever the specific circumstances, uh, whatever specific circumstances might prevail. So Paul rejoices because of his confidence that whether through his death or life, Christ will be honored. Nevertheless, Paul confesses the conflict he feels between these two possibilities. But in the end, Paul shares his expectation that he will remain alive for the benefit of the Philippians' growth or for the Philippians' growth in faith. So let's pick things up where we left off at the, in the middle of 18. And I'll read through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that I will, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, it's important to notice that the deliverance that Paul mentions in verse 19, it isn't his present belief, belief that he'll be released, but that if he dies, he will die to the glory of God, and if he lives, he will live, he will bear fruit, to the glory of God. And Paul's statement in verse 18 is the bridge between Paul's comments on his present circumstance and his future circumstances. I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. In other words, the apostle is convinced that God's faithfulness in the present is proof of his faithfulness in the future. And now we come to the point in the letter where Paul begins to directly exhort the Philippian church. Paul wants the Philippians to see that their confidence, their confidence in the Father's goodness and trustworthiness is the ultimate means to gospel fruitfulness. But what's also especially noteworthy is that the apostle seems to be preparing the Philippian church For that inevitable time when Paul will no longer be accessible to them. Three times he alludes to his absence. Verse 27 he says, Whether I come and see you or am absent. And then again in 2.12, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. And later in 2.17 he says, 
even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now, as Paul's first point, he exhorts the Philippians to stand firm in unity as they strive and suffer for the gospel. Now, earlier in the letter, when Paul said that the Philippians were partakers with him of grace, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that was back in verse 7, that was our first hint that the apostle may have been writing to a church under duress. But in this next paragraph, the circumstances of the Philippian church that prompted Paul's letter come into crisper focus. As Paul talks about the Philippians' opponents, their inclination to fear, and affirms their call to suffer for the gospel's sake. In fact, it's at this point in the letter that we discover this epistle is both a comforting encouragement and an exhortation on how the church at Philippi was to endure adversity. An adversity that was either threatening the church or more likely, I'm sorry, an adversity that was either threatening the church or more likely an adversity that was already being experienced in response to those forces that were becoming increasingly aggressive in their opposition to the gospel. Let me read chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What's important to notice here is Paul's charge to stand firm. Look at verse 27. This is a key theme, and this charge occurs throughout the letter, such as Paul's call to hold fast in 2.16, or hold true in 3.16, or his call once again to stand firm in the first first verse of chapter 4. So that begs the question, well, what is Paul calling the Philippians to stand firm or hold fast to? Well, It's the defense and confirmation of the gospel that he mentioned in chapter 1, verse 7, or as he says in our immediate context, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's useful to note that the word striving in verse 27 is the same word translated as labored in the third verse of chapter 4, where Paul writes, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Same word. Paul's charge is similar to Jude's exhortation in verse 3, where he writes, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all, that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see, 
Paul wasn't writing to a gleeful church, telling them to simply be happy because Jesus loved them. Recall the imagery of Ephesians 6 that I alluded to a few moments ago. The, uh, the imagery of the armor of Christ, uh, the armor of the Lord that Paul talks about at the end of that letter. Paul's writing to fellow combatants who are struggling with the rigors and demands of gospel warfare. A warfare, it turns out, that must first be won in the mind. And it's this mental battle whose ultimate victory is secured by a deepening persuasion of the Father's abundant goodness and faithfulness towards his redeemed saints. Now, I want you to ignore the white space uh, that's at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Paul's train of thought from 127 through 218 is seamless and the white space in your Bible is a bit of a distraction. In fact, Paul's affirmation of the church's call to suffer, suffer is bookended, if you will, by his call to unity. We saw this first in 127, and we see it develop further in the next part of Paul's exhortation as he introduces the necessity of love and humility. Listen to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I think it's pretty obvious that Paul's call to unity is the primary enabler of his charge to stand firm. But he's not talking about a worldly unity achieved by earthly efforts. Instead, Paul's talking about a unity that proceeds from a determined commitment to humility, a supernatural humility that vanquishes all self-centeredness, self-exaltation, and every vestige of vain glory. And this is why Paul's call for humility now appeals to our example par excellence. Beginning in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Once again, Paul's emphasis is on the mind, how we think. Paul's point is obvious. If there is anyone who was entitled to the privileges and glory of his personhood, it was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But Christ did not see fit to lay claim to what was his by right. Instead, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a brutal and shameful death on a cross. And so Paul calls the Philippians to be imitators 
of their Lord and Savior. And in this sense, Paul is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. As Christ humbled himself, so you do likewise. But as significant as this is, Paul's argument isn't complete. Picking up again in verse 9, Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it would be easy to interpret Paul's words in these verses as, as a gripping moment of praise, or what we often refer to as a doxology, a, a response to the marvel and glory of the preceding verses. But these words are not parenthetical. Okay, the, the apostle is not temporarily unplugging himself from his argument in a moment of unbridled praise. Okay, why do I say that? We'll look down at the text. Notice at the beginning of verse 9, notice the word therefore. And then notice the word therefore. That's also at the beginning of verse 12. So you see, Paul's words are very measured and very, very intentional. And what Paul says in verses 9 through 11 is critical to the point of his argument. You see, what Paul wants his readers to recognize is the response of the Father to the Son. Jesus endured the cross because, as Peter informs us, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. In fact, Peter goes on to conclude in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, in 419, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so this is ultimately Paul's overarching point. The principle at center stage here is trust. Believing that the Father is good and trustworthy, no matter the cost. So while Paul points to the, the Philippians to Jesus as their example, he points to the Father as their confidence. This is no small thing in Paul's mind. Listen to how Paul presses this fact as he considers the Philippians' full maturity and the victory of the gospel through them as the implication of everything he's saying. Picking it up in chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his, God, for his good pleasure. Notice the emphasis of verse 13. It is God who works in you. In other words, what Paul is arguing is that just as the Father was working his good, for his good pleasure through the Son, he too is working through the Philippians. This is what Paul alluded to in the opening of his letter in verse, in verse 6 of chapter 1. Do you remember what he said? He said, I am sure of this 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is God who works in you. Do you see the similarity in the parallel between those two statements? He's saying the same thing. He's making the same point. Fight the good fight because the Father's goodness and all of his promises are trustworthy. That's ultimately what Paul is saying. A portion of Scripture that stands as a good contrast to Paul's exhortation to know and trust the Father is found in Jesus' parable of the talents. Turn briefly to Matthew 25. And in particular, I'd like to draw your attention to uh, the third and final servant. Let me read something to you. So Matthew 25, listen to what happens with the third servant, beginning in verse 24. He, uh, He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scatter no seed. Well, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. So we don't have time to unpack all the details, but what I want you to notice is that the servant did not know or understand the character of the master. Notice the charge he makes against the master as the means of his defense, and then how the master responds with a mocking contempt of the servant's charge. You see, it was because the servant misconstrued the nature of the master that he acted wrongly. And so Paul wants the Philippians to think rightly about the Father so that they would think and act as Jesus thought and acted. Paul wants the Philippians' confidence in the Father's goodness and trustworthiness to be the motivation that drives their pursuit of Christ-imitating humility. That produces the gospel unity that leads to gospel victory that is at the center of Paul's joy. In the next paragraph, Paul continues to exhort the Philippians with a view towards their inevitable fruitfulness for the gospel's sake. Listen to uh, beginning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, there's that term again, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad And rejoice with me. Of course, coming off the climax of Paul's argument, these verses strike us kind of with a sense of obviousness. Doing all things 
without grumbling or questioning so that we would be blameless and innocent and all that follows? Doesn't this seem to be the only reasonable response in light of who God is and what he has called us to and equipped us to do? Notice also Paul's allusion to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5, 16. It's also worth noting that Jesus' words in Matthew 5 may be, may be an allusion to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 40, where he writes, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. There's the connection. Psalm 40, 2 through 3. So it's no coincidence that Paul chose the language he did as he has in view the equipping of the Philippians to defend and advance the gospel. As I've already alluded to, there's a, another reference to the day of the Lord and then Paul's allusion to Old Testament sacrifice. And then he concludes with his invitation that the Philippians embrace the same gladness and joy that fills Paul. It's really a statement of camaraderie from one gospel laborer to another. Now, I hope after all of this, you can see that the, the joy filling the pages of this letter, it it isn't some sort of optimism that Paul insists on simply to make the hard parts of Paul's life easier. He isn't arguing about the power of positive thought. He's writing to fellow soldier saints so that they would steward well the gospel of Jesus Christ. And underneath all of the details, Paul's ultimate argument is a call to trust in the character and the promises of the Father, and in so doing, be used of the Father for the advancement of his gospel purposes. And the saving work of the gospel is the ultimate fruitfulness that Paul points to, and it's the Philippians' participation in that fruitfulness that is the source of gladness and joy Paul invites the Philippians to enjoy. Now, the rest of chapter 2, so we have to pause. I know this was a lot, so breathe deeply. The rest of chapter 2 is a distinct literary unit. And in it, Paul turns to the practical matters regarding Timothy and Epaphroditus. And in contrast to the intensity of his prior argument, this section is a bit of a mental rest. And we won't say much about this section as we work through the, the, the book, Um, And we're not going to read this today. We'll probably read this as our liturgical reading next week. Um, And then we'll pick up the rest of the book uh, in in next week's uh, sermon. Okay, But but nonetheless, he talks first about Timothy, and then he talks about Epaphroditus. So having said that, let's take a few moments and, and summarize Paul's train of thought through the first two chapters of the letter. Okay, There's a lot going on. A lot we'll talk about in detail when we preach through the specific sections, but let's rehearse sort of this this uber argument that's sort of at the top of the stack from which everything fishbones off of. 
Okay. Again, Paul is writing in order to encourage and equip the Philippians in their suffering and battle for the gospel so that they could rejoice with Paul in the fruitfulness of the gospel's advance. Well, to do this, Paul needs the Philippians to think differently. He wants them to recognize their need for a unique kind of unity. Again, not the unity produced by the values of this world, but a unity rooted in the love and humility exemplified by Christ himself. But the humility that consumed Jesus' thinking was itself ultimately motivated by Christ's confidence in the goodness and trustworthiness of the Father. And that's the confidence that Paul wants the Philippians to understand and possess. Then it all works backwards. And so what Paul ultimately wants to do is persuade the Philippians that they too can entrust themselves to the Father as Jesus did. And as they do so, the Philippians will rejoice in the fruitfulness that comes from their part in God's saving work. And so if we really wanted to sort of put this under some sort of umbrella idea, we could summarize all this by saying that Paul wanted to raise up among the Philippians a determined faith a determined faith, a very intentional way of thinking rooted ultimately in the example of Jesus Christ and in the confidence of the Father's goodness and trustworthiness. So let's summarize how this actually works itself out in the text. If that was sort of Paul's grasp of what he wanted to achieve, how does he actually go about achieving that? Well, immediately after Paul prays for the Philippians, He informs the Philippians of his current circumstances in prison. This is the point of chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, or at least the first half of 18. But this is ultimately a testimony of the Father's present trustworthiness in response to the supplication and prayers that Paul required of the church in Ephesus. And so Paul is ultimately rejoicing in the trustworthiness of the Father. And so rejoicing in the Father's present work through Paul's imprisonment, Paul is then confident of the Father's future trustworthiness. And that's the point of Paul's testimony from the second half of verse 18 through verse 26. So in that whole section, Paul is is persuaded, he's, he's testifying of his experience of the Father's present trustworthiness and his persuasion of the Father's of his of the Father's future trustworthiness as God has acted and is acting God will continue to act. And so in 1 27 through 218 Paul's ultimate aim is to encourage the Philippians to entrust themselves to the Father's goodness and trustworthiness as well so that they would rejoice with Paul as fellow laborers in gospel fruitfulness. But there's there's three stepping stones to Paul's argument here. First, First, Paul exhorts the Philippians to stand firm in unity as they strive and suffer for the gospel. This unity that Paul demands proceeds from a determined commitment to humility a supernatural humility 
that vanquishes all self-centeredness, self-exaltation, and every vestige of vain glory. This is 1, 27 through 2, 4. And then second, Paul presents Jesus as the Philippians' example and the Father's response to Jesus as their confidence. And Paul points to the Father's goodness and trustworthiness as their motivation to pursue Christ-imitating humility. And it's the pursuit of that Christ-imitating humility that produces the gospel unity he exhorted. And it's that gospel unity he exhorted that leads to gospel victory. And that's what's at the center of Paul's joy. This is verses uh, 2, 5 through 11 and, and how it fits into the larger flow of Paul's, of Paul's argument. And then finally, Paul looks to the Philippians' full maturity and the victory of the gospel through them as an implication of everything he's just said. That's 2, 12 through 2, 18. So this is my encouragement to you this week. There, there's no doubt, no, no doubt that Christ's humility and the Father's exaltation of Jesus that Paul captures in 2, 5 through 11 is the focal point or at the center of Paul's argument in the first half of, of his letter. Okay? And so I'd encourage you to meditate on these verses, both in terms of the humility uh, we're to imitate and, and then how we sort of fund that humility, right? The goodness and faithfulness of the Father that makes every aspect of a life emptied to his purposes worth it. See, we don't just bear down and, and say, I, I, I need the humility of Christ. I need the humility of Christ. I need the humility of Christ. I, I look to the Father and I see his goodness and I see his trustworthiness. Christ submitted everything because he knew the one to whom he was submitting everything. And it was good. And so we look to the Father in the same way. And that's our pathway to the humility that Paul commends us to pursue. And it's that humility that produces the unity. And it's that unity that produces the gospel fruitfulness. And that, brothers and sisters, is what underwrites our joy. That's how we get there. That's how we get there. So let the knowledge of God and his saving purposes change the way you think, the way I think, even more than it has changed already. So that like Paul's desire for the Philippians, we would stand firm with one mind striving for the faith of the gospel. And in so doing, we would be glad and rejoice in all that God has done, all that God is doing, and all that he will continue to do to the glory of his grace. Let me pray. Oh, Father, may these words just saturate our souls May we look to you in in all of your goodness and trustworthiness. Lord, we need to see that. We need to know you. We need to be yet even more deeply persuaded of who you are so that we would would see the humility of Christ and, and it would be desirable to us and all that you commend us to be would be desirable, desirable and joyful to us. Lord, just... Refresh our thirsty souls, feed our, our, our hungry minds so that we would indeed be fruitful, that we would be 
sanctified and chosen vessels created by you and for you to bear the works you've prepared for us to bear. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.